Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, we'll be picking up this week in verse 11 as we continue our way through this letter of 1 John. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Now, one of the most important moments in the gospel stories uh, I think is this moment whenever Jesus is approached by a man who asks him a question. He says to Jesus, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Right? What's most important? I mean, isn't that the question that we all wonder about sometimes? What's most important? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Old Testament, all the law and the prophets are summed up in these two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Paul uh, goes on to say the very same thing uh, in Romans 13 and here in Galatians 5. He says the whole law, all the commandments, are summed up in a single command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, this is core to gospel. This is core to the kingdom of God, to what it is to follow Jesus. And, and this week, we're going to see the same thing in 1 John, right? This, this influenced all of the early Christian communities, and this is the, the truth that we carry today, the, this call to love God and love one another well. At the beginning of verse 3, last week, we talked about this idea that we are children of God. God has called us children, and so we are. It's this picture of our relationship with God, who is our loving Father, right? The love of God. This week, the next half of chapter 3, is going to look at that second part. What does it mean to love our neighbors? as ourselves. And so let's read together 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. And all who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. 
How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth, and we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever he asks because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit that he has given us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your love that you have poured out on us. And we thank you that by your grace, we are able to follow you in loving one another. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you were here last week, you know that we talked about how John seems to always have that creation narrative in the back of his head, in the back of his mind as he writes. We see this as he often begins his writing, both the Gospel of John and this letter of John with reference to the beginning and then to light, right? We see this also in the way that he described becoming God's children earlier in chapter 3, right? God speaks and it happens. He has called us his children and so we are, right? There's, There's this layer of creation behind almost everything that John writes, and we see it again in our passage today as he writes in verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And then he goes on to recall another story from the beginning of Genesis, right? The story of Cain and Abel. You see, though Scripture tells us that God created the world, it never tells us exactly why God created the world, right? But many theologians have reflected on this and and, and have said more or less that God created because it is the nature of love to create. And God is love right? That's what John's going to say in in chapter 4. It is the nature of love to create. Love cannot help but constantly spill over into other 
things beyond itself. So this eternal love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit poured out into this work of creation. Right? It spilled over into, into the heavens and the earth. And so at its very foundation, creation is an act of love. Creation is an act of love. The earth on which we live and breathe is the fruit of God's love. It, it is our very being. And, and John seems to hint at that here when he writes that this message heard from the beginning is love. This message of love one another. But creation... Those early chapters in Genesis is not only the story of how the world came to be, but also of how the world came to be like this. Do you, do you follow me? Not just how the world came into being, but how the world came to be the way that it is, which is why the first few chapters of Genesis don't only tell the story of the making of the world, but also tell stories about the un- making of the world, right? What began as an act of love in Genesis 1 and 2 becomes marred and deformed in Genesis 3. But it doesn't actually stop there, right? We often call the story of Genesis 3, right, where Adam and Eve are led astray and deceived by the serpent. We often call this the fall, Right, the fall of, of humankind. But there are actually several falls in the first few chapters of Genesis. You know, Genesis 3 tells the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, but then Genesis 4 tells another fall story about Cain murdering Abel. Then flip forward, Genesis 6 tells a sort of strange story of the fall of these heavenly beings called Nephilim, right? There's all sorts of theories about what that means. And, and tells a story about the fall of the generation of Noah, right? And you keep reading in Genesis 11, there's another fall story about the fall of society, this Tower of Babel, right? And then the people were confused and, and scattered, so there's one fall after another after another. And the purpose of these opening chapters of Scripture is not only to tell us how the world came to be, but how the world came to be like this. Why is it beautiful and broken? Why is there love and hate? Why is there life and death? Why is the world like this? Well, the opening of Genesis tells us the foundation of all things is the love of God. But time and time again, that has been broken and betrayed and turned against. So John holds all of these stories the making and the unmaking of the world in his mind and in the background as he writes about love, this most fundamental and foundational thing about the world. In chapter 2, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, he warns his audience about 
Antichrist, right? And here, in our passage today, he seems to be warning about anti-creation. Anything that is opposed to that foundational love of God who created the world. And he points to one of these anti-creation stories, the story of Cain. Verse 12, he writes, We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Throughout this whole letter so far in 1 John, he has over and over again emphasized the importance of loving our brothers and sisters. Right? We are God's beloved children, and we ought to love our beloved siblings, our brothers and sisters. He's been emphasizing this over and over again. So here in chapter 3, he points to the first story of the opposite happening. Right? Instead of loving his brother, Cain murders his brother. And then uh, John goes on to describe more about this. Right? He did not only murder him, verse 12 says, and why did he murder him? Why did he do this? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And I think one way of understanding what John is saying here is this Latin phrase, incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se. Right? This was a phrase that was used by Augustine back in the fourth century, and then later by Martin Luther and others to describe the corruption of human nature. And what, what it means, incurvatus in se, what it means is to turn or curve inward on oneself, to kind of curve in, right? It's, it's this sort of way of being deformed, uh, to, to be curved in on oneself. And at least two things happen whenever we become curved inward. First, all we can really see is ourselves. And so we become consumed with ourselves, obsessed with everything that, that we do, everything that has to do with us. All we can see is us. And so, kind of naturally, the second thing that comes from that is that we don't see anyone else. And when we do, it's a threat, right? When we do, it's a threat. Everyone else becomes a threat. And that's what happens here with Cain, right? Why did he murder his brother? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, Cain became obsessed and preoccupied with his own deeds and therefore came to see his brother's deeds as a threat that needed to be eliminated, needs to be cut out, right? This is one of the things at the root of sin, competition instead of partnership, suspicion instead of compassion, hate instead of love, right? This is at the root of hatred, to be turned in on oneself and to turn against all others. This seems to be what's going on with Cain here as he brings this story to bear. 
But love, love is the opposite, right? And, and after recalling the story of hate in Cain, John then offers an alternative story of love in Jesus. If you look at verse 16, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. You see, love is not curved in on itself, but turns outward to others. Love does not take life. It gives life, even its own life, for the sake of others. And these are the stories that John holds up as he talks about what it means to love one another. The story of Cain, who turned in on himself and murdered his brother. And the story of Jesus, who turned outward to everyone and was murdered. But before we turn these stories into sort of nice moral examples to follow, I want to emphasize something. You see, because these are not merely moral examples. I think we, we have a long history of turning every Bible story into a nice moral example for us to walk away with. And I, sometimes the Bible can be that, but that's just not what it is most of the time. The story of Cain is not just an old tale of warning. It is something that every one of us has experienced. It is something that every one of us has experienced. At times, we've experienced what it's like to be stabbed in the back. We've experienced what it's like to be betrayed. We've experienced and know what it is like to be hated by others, perhaps even those whom we have held near and dear to ourselves. And... At other times, we have been the ones who've harbored bitterness and resentment. Sometimes we have been the ones who look on everyone else with a little bit of suspicion, who kind of see everyone else might be a threat. Watch out, right? Maybe we haven't murdered someone but Jesus says that hatred is the same as murder. John says the same in verse 15, all who hate a brother or sister are murderers. So Cain's story is not just a cautionary tale. It's a story about us. It's a story about our experience. But the same is true of Jesus. The same is true of Jesus. Jesus is not just a heroic example of self-sacrifice for us to follow. Look at verse 16. It says, he laid down his life for us. For us. It says, this is how we know love. And not just know in our heads or know as some story in a book somewhere, but know in the depths of our being. This is how we've experienced love. Jesus has laid down his life for us, for 
us. Jesus is not just a good example. He is God who took on flesh, came to dwell among us, and laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for you. To rescue you from sin and death. To raise you up into a new life. This is true. It's not just a story. This is true. He has rescued us and raised us up, which is why John goes on to write, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another as well. Right? So we, we don't just follow Jesus because he is a good example. We follow him because he is God who rescued us and redeemed us. Which means that as we follow him, following him is not a matter of strong will. It's not a matter of grit. Following Jesus is a matter of grace. It's by his grace that he has rescued us, and it is by his grace that we follow him as well. And that we lay down our lives for one another. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to lay down our lives for one another? Well, well, John goes on to elaborate on this in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, he asks a question. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? So he gives us this this picture of what it looks like to lay down our lives for and love one another. You see, I, there's, there's some words here that are really helpful that various translations do different things with, right? The, the, the one I just read is to see a brother or sister in need and yet refuse to help. Uh, there are others that might say refuse to pity them or refuse to have compassion on them which is actually, I think, a much better translation because this word to help someone or have pity on someone is, is a word that occurs often throughout Scripture. And it, it immediately brought me to a story of Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 6, there's this story. It says, As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That word, compassion, it's the same root word as the word help here in verse 17. So, you know, who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to have compassion on them? Right? And I love what the story goes on to is it really shows a picture of what it looks like to help, help someone, right? To, to give of what you have. So, so the story goes on. He says that, you know, he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came and said, hey, this is a deserted place. 
And the hour is now very late. Send them away so we might go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them what it means to love their brothers and sisters. And he says to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. They're hungry. Don't you see that they're in need? Well, give them something to eat. And so they say to him, are we to go buy, you know, 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat, right? There's thousands of people. How in the world are we going to do this? And he says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. You probably don't have to finish reading that story for you to know what happens, right? Jesus uses what they have and provides for those in need. Often, you know, we look at the need of the world and become crippled and paralyzed by it. Let them take care of themselves. I I can't fix all that. But that's not what Jesus taught his disciples. He didn't say, you need to go feed all of them. He just said, what do you have? Let's use that. Let's work with that. And this is what John says here in verse 17. Anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need, right? It doesn't mean that you have all the world's goods, but whatever you have, use that to serve, to give freely. You may not be able to solve all the problems in the world, but trust that God is in control. What do we have? How can we serve with what we do have? This is what it means to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. And then in verse 18, he goes on to say this, kind of a summary statement. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. You see, love is action. Uh, plenty of others have said it in various ways. That, you know, there's love is a verb, right, is, is a song uh, that, that I grew up listening to. Um, there's, you know, a more recent book entitled Love Does, right? I mean, this, this is what love is. Let us not love in word or speech, but in truth and action, there's, there's a kind of a silly show that uh, Caitlin and I have recently discovered. Um, it's called Schmigadoon, right? Which just by its name, you know it's going to be something funny. Uh, it, it's kind of this parody musical uh, TV show. It, if you are, you know, no musicals, you might know Brigadoon is a classic musical, and it's, you know, kind of a spoof on that and other kinds of musicals. The plot of this show is this couple is walking through the woods one day and ends up crossing this bridge into this town called Schmigadoon, where everyone likes to sing and dance, right? And so they walk into the town, and everyone sings and dances and welcomes them, and they're like, what's going on? You know, this, this crazy show. And they try to turn around and leave. And when they go back to cross that bridge again, 
they find that when they get to the other side, they're still facing Shmegadun, and they can't get out of the town. And what they learn is you cannot leave Shmegadun until you have found true love. So the rest of the show, they're trying to figure out how can we get out of this town, which is to ask the question, what is true love, right? And there are all sorts of different directions that, that the show goes. You know, they try to cross the bridge together and they find out, well, I guess we aren't really truly in love because we couldn't get out. So how does, how does that happen? And at some point, you know, they break up and go try to cross the bridge with other people in the town. Maybe that's true love. Just, you know, find it somewhere else. And, you know, it's silly and goofy. The, the writers, I think it's the same writers as, as SNL, so you can kind of get the, the humor and, and some of the stuff there. But there's this one scene that really stuck with me. You know, the, the, the guy from that couple is kind of worn out. He's trying to find love wherever he can. He, you know, lined up all of the women in the town and tried crossing the bridge with each one of them to no, to no avail. And so he, he just wanders into the town chapel. And the, the town, you know, priest walks over and sits down next to him and says, you know, what's, what's going on? And he explains the situation to him. And now I'm sort of on the edge of my seat. What, is, what are the SNL writers going to do here, right? What, what are they going to have this priest say to this guy? I'm, I'm curious. And it was actually a moment of wonderful truth where the priest leans in and he says, well, you know, the good book has something to say about all this. And he quotes from 1 Corinthians 13, True love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In other words, it's a lot of work. So it's probably not something you find. It's probably something you make. That's good. That's good writing. That's true. Love is not something that we just happen to fall into. It's not whatever we happen to feel at any given moment. As much as our cultural narrative would like to tell us that that's what love is, love is not something you find. Love is something that you make. Let us not love in word or speech, but in truth and action. Love makes action. Love is an active thing. It goes, it moves, it pursues, it seeks out. Right? Love, it is the nature of love to create. It is the nature of love to spill over into other things and other people. It's why God created the heavens and the earth, and it's what he calls us to do as well, to live in love and let our love spill over into others. So this is this big picture that John gives of what it means to love our neighbor, not like Cain, curved in on himself, ultimately murdering his brother, but like Jesus, opened up, to all, freely giving of life. This is what it means to love our neighbor. But Jesus didn't stop there when he was quoting the greatest commandment. And John doesn't stop there either, right? Because it's not just love your neighbor, it's love your neighbor 
as yourself. Which means that a certain healthy measure of self-love is a part of following Jesus. It's a part of following Jesus. And that's what John goes on to say in verses 19 and beyond. He says, By this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. And so in these verses, John highlights this reality that at times, our hearts will condemn us. At times, our hearts will, will speak things that say we are not loved by God. We are not uh, people uh, of, we are not his children, right? We are not the, the people of God. Our hearts will condemn us at times. What does that mean? You know, I, I actually think that this is another form of incurvatus in se. This is actually another way of curving in on ourselves. You see, on, on the one end, we can curve in on ourselves and be filled with pride. It's all about me, and everyone else is in my way. But on the other side of pride is shame, which is, well, it's all about me, but I am awful. It's all about how terrible I am. It is the heart condemning. And this is not of God. This is not of the gospel. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything, right? See what love the Father has. He's called you his children. And so you are. Now, I, I want to differentiate between a couple of things because there's a difference between the heart condemning and the Holy Spirit convicting. These are two different things. How can we tell the difference between them? Well, condemnation is that shame that keeps us stuck right where we are. It is that shame that pushes others away and keeps us stuck. But conviction actually helps us move. And conviction draws us closer to one another. Condemnation is a thing that makes us turn away. It makes us turn inward in shame. But conviction opens us up to the Holy Spirit and to God, which is why it goes on to say, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have boldness. We have boldness before God to pray to him, to walk in his ways and to receive from him. So we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
For too long, much of faith has pushed us in a direction of completely self, complete self-annihilation, right? This just complete destruction of the self, but that is not what God calls us to. He calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to live with the conviction, not condemnation, but the conviction that we are, in fact, God's beloved children. And it is from here that love spills out and overflows in all directions. It is the overflow of love by which we love one another. And so as we come to a close, I want to give you three challenges this week, uh, three ways to live into some of these things. And the first is this, as we consider the story of Cain, is there anyone in your life who you have wronged or who you have been wronged by? Do you need to repent? Do you need to forgive? I want to encourage you to bring that to mind and maybe reach out if someone does come to mind. What does it look like to pursue, to repent, to forgive, to let go of bitterness and resentment, suspicion, hatred? Is there anyone in your life to whom you need to repent or who you need to forgive? Another challenge is love does not just sit around waiting for something to land in its lap, right? Love overflows and pursues. Is there anyone who you can pursue in love this week? Someone you can call, reach out to, drop by, do something for. Is there someone you can pursue in love this week? Who is that? Pursue them. Take a step. Let love overflow from you. The third challenge that I have is simply this. When the heart condemns you, God is bigger than your heart. Take time this week to rest in and receive God's love. Maybe it's returning to the beginning of 1 John chapter 3 and just meditating on those first couple of verses. See what love the Father has. He has called us his children. And just sit in the truth of that. Whenever your heart begins to condemn, say no. That's not true. Whenever you begin to withdraw in shame, say, no, this is not what God has called me to. Rest in God's love. These are the things that I challenge us to this week. As we become those people who obey his commandments, abide in him, and he abides in them. By this we know that he abides in us, by his spirit, which he has given to us. May we walk in the Spirit as we love one another this week. Amen.